Have you ever heard that line? It's just a joke. Lighten up. Don't be so serious. Don't be offended. Um, have you ever had something that was quite rude stated and almost excused as just joking? You know, it, it's okay. Hands up if you've been there. All right, most of us have been there. I, I grew up in the era of uh, Irish jokes, blonde jokes, Jewish jokes. In fact, you pick any ethnic group anywhere in the world and there were jokes told about that group of people. And it just seemed to be the norm. It just seemed to be the thing that happened. Um, where people were being teased either because of some way that they spoke or some kind of national trait or cultural practice or some perceived lack of intelligence, whatever it might have been, um, there was something that was found in order to poke fun at and ridicule and it was all in the guise of just joking. And I was never really comfortable. Thankfully that stuff doesn't happen as much now as it used to. But um, when, when that sort of thing was going on all the time, I was never really comfortable when Christians started doing it and it found its way into the church. Because it felt to me like the, the church is meant to be a community, as we've celebrated this morning, where everybody feels welcomed and valued and no one's been kind of made to feel separate and, and foolish or anything like that. We ought to be building people together and building people up, not kind of tearing people down and ridiculing. Do you kind of get where I'm feeling with that? Um, but yet that was a, a challenge in the era. Uh, but what we want to do as a church is not follow the pattern of the world. We want to live differently. And Paul, just after he'd written to the church in Rome about, hey, let's not live according to the pattern of this world anymore. Let's, let's allow God to transform us by his truth so that we actually live according to God's will. He goes to spell it out in these words. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Don't repay anyone for evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honourable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And that's, that's the sort of spirit that I wanted to see in a church that I belong to. It's a community that cares about reconciliation with all people because we've been reconciled to the God who loves all people. I don't want anybody to feel, whether it's because of any kind of factor of you know, where they come from, how old they are, what the colour of their hair is, what their ethnic background is, what their gender is, or anything like that. I don't want anyone to feel as though they're being excluded, ostracised, ridiculed, made to feel less than. I want all of us to feel like we are giving careful thought to each other. What's going to build each other up? What's going to help each other feel valued and like we belong to this family that God has established through the precious blood of his son, Jesus. And last week we asked the question, what is the role of the church in reconciling people to God and each other? Instead of just bundling along in the pattern of the world, what does the church do that God has designed it to do that actually helps create this wonderful family where people are being reconciled to God and to one another? Nobody left out, nobody left behind, everybody welcomed. And we saw that there were two things that God has asked every Christian to do uh, and they, those were, firstly, to proclaim truth and practice wisdom. They go together um, because what you do has got to match what you say. So the first thing we want to do is we want to live according to the truth of Jesus, which is what that diagram uh, represents. There are some things that fit with Jesus and some things that don't. First thing we want to do is we want to explain this is what it means to know Jesus. This is what Jesus stands for. This is what Jesus showed us. This is what Jesus taught us. This is how everything in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, points to the glory of who Jesus is and how to live for him. That's the first thing we want to do. And we don't want to just want to say it, we want to do it in how we live. That's the, the first thing that the church is called to do, to create this community of reconciliation. 
preach what is true, teach what is true, encourage what is true, affirm what is true, model what is true. That's our first priority. And the second one, which goes with that, because as you'll see in that picture, no one's got it all together yet. All of us have got stuff in our lives that doesn't yet fit with Jesus. And so we have a role as well in exposing lies and resisting foolishness. Where, for example, you might get used to the habit of, of just making jokes without even thinking about their impact on people. That's only a fairly small thing, but it can be a big thing if it's, a, if it's hurtful to somebody. So we're learning to, okay, what are the things we need to leave behind? What's the stuff that doesn't fit with Jesus? What are the, the lies that we sometimes take on board that don't actually have support from Scripture? And what are the habits that we've built? Maybe it's because of how we grew up, or maybe it's because of the people we hang around, or maybe it's just because of what we wanted to do. What are the things that we've got to say, no, that's a foolish way to live. God tells us a better way, and we've got to start doing that. That's the work of the church. That's what our community does. It holds up what is good and true, and it exposes what doesn't fit with that, and it helps people to choose to live according to what Jesus said, what he showed and what he commands. Um, we often call that repentance and faith, don't we? We turn away from the things that we might have done without Christ, the things that offend God, the things that um, deserve his punishment, the things that tear people down. Uh, we turn away from that stuff and by faith we believe God's way is the best way. So let's understand what that is and let's live it out. And that's what the church does. So Proverbs 27 verse 6 reminds us that the wounds of a friend can be trusted. So when it comes to uh, proclaiming truth and practicing wisdom, we want to do that really broadly. Hey, let's, let's affirm as much as we can. Let's teach as much as we can. But when it comes to where we've got to come alongside somebody and point out some things that aren't uh, fitting with Jesus that are in their life, um, that's best done by those who draw close, by those who build relationship, who know that there's a loving uh, intention. And we can actually help each other to turn away from those things that are in our lives that ought not to be there. And so we'll fulfil those two basic functions in each other's lives. Last week we began looking at six peacemaking practices where we do that, but where there's issues that have arisen in uh, relationships between people in the church, there are six specific ways that we can uh, apply these principles in, in ways that really help reconcile relationships and deal with sin when it's making a mess of relationships. And we've, we looked at the first of those, uh, which are three ways that we support people uh, or, or parties to do certain things. You know, we're not coming in and saying we're the boss. We're just coming alongside people who are maybe struggling with an issue that's divided uh, some, some people or hurt that they've experienced. I'm saying we'd, we'd like to help you to do these things. And the first thing we, we try and help people to do is to overlook the offence. You see, when we're, we're looking at things that aren't right in each other's lives, you could spend your whole life just thinking about the things that I do wrong, let alone anybody else in the congregation. So we're not meant to have this kind of radar, what can I see that's wrong that I can say you shouldn't be doing that. That's not the kind of community that we want to build. That's kind of legalism and control and judgmentalism. That's not at all what the Bible calls us to. What it, what it calls us to is to help each other grow past being controlled by sin. Now, sanctification, which is what that process is, goes for our whole lifetime. And even across a whole lifetime, it won't be finished until Jesus transforms us completely, gives us new bodies, new hearts, enables us to live perfectly. Until then, there are going to be plenty of times when we're going to choose to overlook an offence. Why? Well, because if we spend all of our time noticing what's wrong in each other, our relationships are controlled by sin. 
rather than being controlled by Christ. We don't want to have our focus on what's wrong. We want to have our focus on who is glorious. So we want to focus on Jesus, not on the things that people aren't getting right. So there are going to be times when we choose to overlook offence. Just because somebody hurts me doesn't mean I need to go and deal with that issue. That's a bit countercultural. Sometimes we feel like when we've been offended, then we've got to kind of do something about it. But there are plenty of times, and you've all experienced it, where somebody's behaviour has hurt you or you've noticed it and you've gone, okay, what does God call us to do? In this occasion, maybe it's just to bear with that person, to recognise that they're still growing and to love them and continue to treat them as part of the community and trust that in his good time, God will enable them to move past that particular sin. It's not what we do all the time, but it is what we should do some of the time. You can forgive some things without the person even needing to be aware. And as I look back over my life, and as I think more closely about the way that I spoke or behaved in particular situations, I, I realise, you know what, so many people have been so gracious to me. Can you say that as well? As you look back over your life, wow, I'm so thankful that my parents were as patient as they were, or my friends were as patient as they were, or my church family was as patient as they were. That's just what we do for each other when we love each other. So overlooking offences is a basic thing that we can coach each other to do. But we shouldn't do that all the time. Because if we really love each other, we need to be prepared to step in and help each other move past the sins that do sabotage our lives and do damage relationships. And that's the second part of what we offer each other. We offer to help with reconciliation. So when somebody has a relationship that has been damaged by sin and where behaviour is causing problems, and it's not just a once-off that can be overlooked, but it's an ongoing issue, we come alongside each other and we say, how can we help you to reconcile this relationship? The goal is always to win the person, not to win an argument or change somebody else. It's how can we help one another to be in right relationship with God and with one another. And sometimes that involves this next step as well, which is learning how to negotiate issues. You know when you're disagreeing with something, and maybe it's a decision that you've got to make as a community, or maybe it's, it's um, just something that you saw somebody do and you're not sure whether it was the right thing to do or not. Sometimes there is an issue that needs to be worked out and it needs to be negotiated. This perspective needs to be heard, that perspective needs to be heard, and a decision needs to be made. And sometimes people might be like, oh, no, no, you have your way, and that can be brilliant. Well done. You've, you've, you've shown that you're willing to submit your own needs and desires for the sake of another person. Sometimes it's the worst thing to do, because to glorify God and achieve a good result in that situation might require you to step in and say, you know what, I'm not sure that your way is the best way. And we have to learn how to have those conversations. So helping each other learn how to negotiate issues where we first seeking to glorify God, secondly seeking to serve others as well as ourselves, is part of community life. And we're supposed to help each other with that. The Bible is full of instructions on how we do each of those three things. So if you're a follower of Jesus, as you're reading your Bibles, you will see it speak to this all the time. So God doesn't just suggest those things. God commands that we get involved in them. And that's what leads us to the next three peacemaking uh, practices. Now, these next three are a little bit scarier. Because these first three, it's like where we come alongside and we gently encourage and we help, but we're not really a part of the situation. We're just giving some advice and praying for and seeking to assist from the side. The next three things that the Bible calls us to do in our relationships with each other when there are issues that are going on are far more challenging. So let's identify what they are before we turn our attention to a scripture that speaks to them. 
We step into the dispute. We're not on the side anymore. We're actually getting involved between two parties to do three, th to, to do three things. The first thing is that we can mediate between parties. That's where people are having a problem, just having a conversation that is actually glorifying to God and good for each other. So you step in to control the discussion and guide it toward a successful conclusion. You're helping the parties to bring the best out of each other, to see what is good in each other, when at the beginning they might just be seeing what's bad in each other. You're helping to show what the Bible says into this situation so that they can respond to the Bible in the way that they treat each other and in the way that they address any issues that they have to deal with. The Bible sets the rules. And we have to be super, super clear. When we come in and mediate, if you've got people who are having a disagreement and they need somebody in the church to come in and help them with that, we've got to be really clear that our authority is never in ourselves. We actually come as people who can speak God's word in a relevant way, in a helpful way. And perhaps because we're not so involved in the situation, we might be able to see things a little bit clearer and our memory might work a little bit better. So we bring God's word in to mediate between the two parties. The second thing that we do is that we can adjudicate on the issues. And this is when the parties just can't come to agreement. And even though the Bible is being used to help people have conversations and to think about God's principles, uh, they're still struggling to agree, well, what are, we, what are we going to do here? And they're not getting anywhere. Sometimes at the end of that, they just say, look, you decide and we'll abide by your decision. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Usually people don't willingly do that. Usually it's not until a court or some authority says, now you're going to listen to me, that that happens. But according to the Bible, Christians can actually choose to allow somebody in their community to say, look, we're having a problem figuring this out. We're just not getting anywhere. Why don't you decide and we'll abide by your decision? We're going to hear a little bit more about that in just a moment. And the last thing that Christians are asked to do for each other is we're asked to hold each other accountable. Uh, so when the word of God says something clearly, that we actually expect that we will obey that. And when we've agreed to do something practical as a result of a discussion or a, a mediation or an arbitration, uh, that people actually do what they said they would do. As you look at that, that's, that's kind of heavy, isn't it? Does anyone feel well equipped to do it? I can't tell you how many courses I've been on and I find it incredibly daunting the idea of doing that level of work, where you step into a dispute to mediate or adjudicate or to hold people accountable. So now we're going to hear the Apostle Paul speak to this stuff as he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So as usual, I'll put the words on the screen. Uh, my preference is always that you'll have it in front of you in your own Bibles or on your devices, uh, whatever works best for you. This is what the Apostle Paul says. If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. 
and you do this to brothers and sisters. I love the way that the Bible is always very realistic about what actually goes on in communities of people. It addresses the real things that often go wrong so that we can be helped when we see that stuff going on in our lives and in our communities as well because we're not alone. God's had to deal with this before. Christians have worked their way through this stuff and we can join in the rich tradition of seeing God change us in how we deal with disputes when they affect us in the church and in our relationships in general. Now, I've got to be honest, I'm a conflict avoider. hate it. I hate it. You know when you're in, a, in an argument and it could just be a one-on-one -on -one conversation, it could be uh, in a, some sort of meeting or group thing, uh, you, know, you know what it's like when your heart races and your brain just seems to go fuzzy and you've all been there, right? There are some people who that, that's like, bring it on, this is where I shine. But for most of us, we don't like that at all. Given the choice to run toward conflict or away from it, I will run away as fast as I can. But you know what makes the difference? You know what makes a person like me choose to step into it rather than run away from it? There's potentially some unhealthy reasons, but there is one healthy one. And there's one that the Bible calls us to. That's love. You see, when you love God enough that you're willing to stand for what he says is good and to, to uphold his reputation in the world, that means that you have to be willing to engage sometimes. When you love people enough that you don't want to see lives ruined by sin, you want to stand in when things are happening that shouldn't happen and say, no, we cannot allow that, then you're going to step into some stuff. And that's what these last three steps, those last three peacemaking processes are all about. As much as we hate to acknowledge it, sometimes love demands for us to step into the middle of conflict. And I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to over the years who've been hurt by bad behaviour, even in churches. And sometimes it gets to the point where they give up on church, which is a tragedy. But you know what I've noticed, um, both from my own experience and from the many people I've talked to? Very often it's not the behaviour of a person who sinned against them that hurt the most. It was the fact that others saw it and didn't step in. Have you been there? Whether it was, you know, we talked about silly jokes earlier. Maybe it was one of those and it was hurtful and no one said, hey, that's not how we joke around. Maybe it's a much deeper form of mistreatment that occurred and nobody did anything about it. And as I've spoken to people, very often the people who have given up on church, that was the thing that hurt most. And in some cases there was reconciliation between the person who actually did what was wrong. But between all of those who were standing around, what do you do with that? Something failed in the life of the church and that's exactly what Paul is addressing and we're going to step through in a moment you might have heard this proverb the behavior you permit is the behavior you promote have you heard that one before you might not have heard it expressed that way but you've experienced it the behavior you permit is the behavior you promote anyone who's ever been a parent knows that in your home whatever you let go becomes normal Anyone who's been in any kind of community group, uh, whether it's a church or anything else, whatever you allow to happen will soon become the norm. Whatever you permit is the behaviour you promote. And when sinful, damaging behaviour finds its way into any situation you're a part of, you can either step up to protect, protect God's reputation, protect the people that God loves, or you can run away. You can permit evil to flourish. And that is the forgotten power of church discipline. 
which is what we're thinking about today. So as, as challenging as it is, it's important for us to think about. So let's turn our attention to 1 Corinthians 6 and see what's going on in this passage to help us know how to navigate this stuff. We're going to start with what was actually happening at the time, which Paul talks about actually at the end of the passage. So verses 7 and 8. Um, in the first six verses, he tells them what he wants them to do, and we'll get to that in a minute. But after he's done that, he, he says, as it is, right now, this is what's going on. So let's start with what's going on. He says, as it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Things are a bit grim in Corinth. There's disputes within the church community that Paul has heard about, and they're a sign of a deeper dysfunction. See, as Christians, they should rather have somebody sin against them than for them to sin against somebody else. They would rather be wronged by somebody than to do wrong by somebody. They would rather be cheated by somebody than cheat somebody else. That's what should be going on. Why? Well, as Christians, we believe that justice belongs to God and, and God will make sure you are okay. If somebody sins against you, if somebody cheats you or wrongs you anyway, God's still your protector. He's the one you take refuge in and one day he will judge everything. So you leave that to him and you can rest in his sovereignty and his power and his ultimate justice, which is on its way. Um, you know that's coming. You don't have to fight for your rights. God is your champion. But on the flip side of that, God has called you to be his representative in the world, right? So if you wrong somebody, what does that give the impression when it comes to who God is and what God is like and what his people are like and what we've been called to be? When you cheat somebody, what does that say about the life that God has called Christians to and how that represents Jesus himself? That's a tragedy. It represents this idea that, you know what, Jesus might say that you know, love of money is the root of all evil. I don't quite buy that because I'm going to cheat and steal and get as much as I can, even if it means cheating my, my fellow believers. It means that it's not genuine for you. It's a, it's a tragedy when we are willing to do wrong rather than be wronged. And Paul looks at the church in Corinth and says, guys, I hate to point this out, but that's where some of you guys are at. You're not worried about how you're representing God in the world. You're not worried about the fact that you're not really um, following Jesus in your life and trusting what he says is good. This is a terrible place to be at. And the beauty of these three peacemaking practices, when you step into situations to bring God's word to bear, you have an opportunity to help people who are not doing well. They're not following Jesus even though they own the name Christian. They're not representing Jesus to the world the way that we ought to. And we have an opportunity to do something about that. But whose job is it? When you see stuff like was going on in Corinth where you look at it and go, oh man, that shouldn't be happening in the church. Oh, that person cannot have a right relationship with Jesus. Oh, isn't that person thinking about their impact on others? When you see that stuff going on, whose job is it to act? Do something about it. Just reading your minds. Yep, most of you agree it's the pastor's job. If not him, it's the elders. Or you've come from another church tradition, the bishop, he'll take care of it. It's always somebody else's job. But you notice, Paul is actually writing to a community of people here and saying, you together. We need to be about doing something about that. Listen as he describes what that looks like as we step into the instructions that are found in the first six verses. From verse 1 we read, 
If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more the matters of this life? First of all, to go to a human court that does not recognise the truth of God or the authority of God is outrageous. Why is that? according to Paul in this passage. Well, it's because all of God's people, every single one of us, has been appointed by God to sit with him in judgment over this world and even over the angels. You know, Jesus addresses this same truth when he speaks to the Apostle John and it's recorded in Revelation 3 in verses 19 to 21. It's a pretty well-known passage. Let me read it to you. This is addressed to the church in Laodicea. And Jesus has pointed out some things in Laodicea, just like Paul has done in Corinth, where he says, oh, this stuff isn't right. Got to deal with this. He goes on to say this. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in to him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus is at work through his church. He's purifying us from sin so that we can have a deeper fellowship with him and one day... Join him in his rule over all things. He's preparing us now for that ultimate responsibility. This is our destiny in Christ. And we must not neglect the way God wants to prepare us by doing it now, in learning how to exercise loving discipline, in responding to discipline, in the way that we are being prepared for our glorious future. So that's why Paul goes on to say from verse 4, So if you have such matters, why do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be there's not one wise person among you who's able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother and that before unbelievers. Paul just finds it unthinkable. You mean when you're having a problem with somebody else in your community that you can't find one other person in your church who knows the scriptures well enough, who has the Holy Spirit within them helping them and has the wisdom and the experience to step into that and say, hey, this is what we need to do here, brothers. This is what we need to do here, sisters. And is able to guide you through that process. And if you can't come to agreement yourselves that you don't trust them enough that you'll back their judgment when they say, okay, I think this is what we should do. Do you mean there's nobody you can turn to in your church community who could do that for you? And Paul just thinks it's outrageous. So Jesus is preparing us to judge the universe, you guys. One day this is the job you're going to have and he's purifying you from sin right now. And he's helping you to learn this role of being able to see right from wrong, to live wisely instead of foolishly. We're all on that journey. So, of course, we've got to be able to help each other with this stuff. And there's a price to pay when we don't. Paul says to the church, there, it's got, you guys are like a laughing stock. You say Jesus is the way, the truth in your life, but as soon as you've got a problem, hey, we need some court of, some court of law to tell us what we ought to do. Is he the way, the truth, and the life, or isn't he? So it's serious stuff that Paul is addressing. And that's what people often don't understand when we think about the topic of church discipline. Even just saying those words, church discipline, sounds heavy, doesn't it? And you might assume that it's leaders who kind of 
have the rule book open and watching out over all you guys. And as soon as you step out of line, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. If you want to come here, you better not be doing that anymore. And you kind of have that kind of controlling, legalistic attitude. That's often what we think of when we think about church discipline. It's not what the Bible calls church discipline. Is there a time for leaders to exercise and lead the process of church discipline? Absolutely. In fact, just before writing this letter, Paul had been a part of that. There was a problem that happened in the church at Antioch and it was such a significant problem, they took it to the leaders in Jerusalem and said, guys, we need help to sort this out. So yes, there's a role for leaders, but it's not the domain only of leaders. It's what we do because we love each other. We care about each other's lives. We care about the relationships that exist in our community. We care about our relationships with those in the world around us. And we, we love each other enough to say, when sin is making a mess of things, I'm not just going to stand by and let that roll. I'm not going to let behaviour grow in my church family that's going to damage people. When I see it, I'm going to do something about it. So again, we have to ask ourselves, how are we being prepared to do that? How are we learning the skills of listening well and speaking well and, and engaging well? And we are not going to cover that today because that is a lifetime of work. You cannot rush that. Which is why we need to have intergenerational relationships where the older and the younger and the, those who have been following Jesus for a short time and those who have been following him for a long time and people who come from different ethnic backgrounds and ways of thinking and seeing things and doing things, we need us all to be coming together and learning together how to do this well. Because every generation has its blind spots. Old people have their blind spots. Young people have their blind spots. We need to be helping each other. Every person who's been following Jesus, even if it's for five minutes, has something precious of Jesus to share with somebody else and some way to help somebody else. We've got to be learning and growing in this together. That's why Proverbs 15:32 says, Anyone who ignores discipline despises himself, but whoever listens to correction acquires good sense. I've been corrected sitting in a meeting by a mature believer who pointed out that what I said was a bit judgmental. And I was like, yeah, you're right. That, that wasn't what I intended, but that's definitely what it sounded like. And I was able to, to respond to that correction in the moment. I've been corrected by a five-year-old who pointed out that my behaviour was not appropriate. Not in a, you're doing wrong, babe, but in actually saying, this is how that affected me. Um, anyone who ignores discipline despises himself. It's not about being right or wrong. It's about, do I want to be the person that God's making me to be? If so, I'm going to listen to correction and acquire that good sense. There's heaps of Proverbs. Just look up the word discipline in Proverbs. You'll find so many wonderful verses. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but who, the one who hates correction is stupid. Now, you know I don't like to be rude, but the Bible is, so I'll just have to, <laughs> to read it. It's true. Like if you're not willing to hear from other people, you're stupid, according to the Bible. I wouldn't say that, but God does. Right? But you know that, don't you? You've seen what it does in a person's life. Proverbs 6.23, For the command is a lamp, teaching is a light. Remember, most of our work is proclaiming those good truths and showing each other how to live positively. But then the other side, and corrective discipline is the way to life. It's got to be something we embrace this opportunity and responsibility to exercise discipline in our community, to stand up against wrong and not allow it to flourish. Do you want to be somebody who helps people on the way to life? Do you want to be somebody who is willing to be helped 
on the way to life. What's going to make that happen? Let's not be people who fill our heads with knowledge that never gets turned into wisdom. Let's not be people who know what to do but never actually do it. Let's not be people who let Satan steal, kill and destroy because we're still following the pattern of the world when we're meant to be being transformed by the truth of God. Let's not allow the power of church discipline to be forgotten. If we love God and love each other, we'll embrace the roles that God has given us in each other's lives. We'll step up to protect people from sin instead of standing by and permitting it to ruin lives. We'll love the one being wronged enough that we'll step into that moment but we'll also love the one who is doing wrong enough that we will seek to help them grow beyond their sinful behaviours. So my question for you today is simple. What's that going to look like for you? What's your next step? Uh, this morning as I was running around getting ready for music practice, there was three guys meeting together in one of the rooms. That's what they were doing. They're, they're relating to one another and they're getting to know each other well enough that they know who has their back. They know who can speak into their lives. They know who's going to pray for each other that they would be growing. What's that look like for you? Do you have a community of people that you can accept God's truth from, even in those times when it needs to look like discipline? I'd love for you to tell somebody what your next step is so they can cheer you on. So be brave today. Have that conversation with somebody. Let them know what your next step is. Ask them to pray for you and keep you accountable for it. And if you're not sure what your next step is, Maybe there's somebody who you know in our church family or maybe somewhere else in your life who might have wisdom to say, you know, I think for you your next step could look like this. And they might give you some verses of scripture to help you take that next step in your life. And if you're not sure how to even do that, come see me. I'd love to cheer you on and to hook you up with some people who might be able to help you in this journey. It'll take a lifetime of consistent work to get the hang of this stuff. Um, it takes practice and we'll get it wrong, and we'll have to be gracious with each other sometimes when we do. But Jesus has promised to finish the good work that he has started in us, helping us to flourish as we celebrate and affirm the good things that are already in our lives, and helping us to turn away from the things when we lovingly point them out that are holding us back from running our race. What does Hebrews 12 say? Let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And the good news of Scripture is you don't have to do that on your own. You've got people around you who will help you. And then you'll be able to run the race that he has marked out for you with perseverance. Let's pray.